Okay. Great. All right. So with that, I um, hope everyone can hear me. And this is very interesting. First time I've done this uh, over Zoom. Uh, so thank you all for joining this very exciting talk. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, so first and foremost, I mean, the name of this discussion is, is titled Othering Iran, How Dehumanization of Iranians Undermines Rights at Home, uh, based off a wonderful report that Nayak's Asadrad has put together and brought us all together here today. So uh, yeah, I mean, the central part of this discussion is how Iran as a country and its people have been demonized over decades in the U.S. political discourse, of, you know, of course, but also in the media and pop culture. You know, we've all grown up with various influences and moments in our time, in our formative years, and even today, where we see kind of Iran, Iranian Americans, hyphenated Iranians represented in various ways by powerful people and people with access to microphones. And then how that dehumanization or how that representation and depiction has impacted policy on Iran hurt the Iranian American community, but also vice versa how essentially the opposite has also happened. So, or, you know, we're going to have a little bit of a chicken or the egg discussion as well in terms of how maybe these two elements feed into each other, how policy can feed into media representation, how media representation can feed into policy. And so with that, yeah, very excited to start this. I want to introduce our speakers um, and hope I don't butcher anyone's intro or bio, but here goes nothing. Uh, so first and foremost, uh, let's start with uh, Dr. John Razvinian. Funnily enough, fun fact, and my family is from Ghazvin. I, I don't know if you can, part of my family, do you have Ghazvini roots? So fun fact, uh, no, I have absolutely no relation to Ghazvin whatsoever. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, gotcha. Okay, anyways, we'll continue. Dr. John Ghazvinian, the executive director of the Middle East Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, John is an author, historian, and former journalist, specializing in the history of U.S.-Iran relations. Uh, definitely check out his most recent book, which I'm very excited to read, America and Iran, A History from 1720 to the Present. It's a comprehensive look at sort of the bilateral relationship between the two countries. It came out in January of last year. Uh, moving on, uh, Dr. Niaz Kasravi, a founder and director of the Avalon Institute, a research advocacy and training institute. Dr. Kasravi is a national expert and advocate on criminal justice, social justice, racial justice, and she's got 20 years of experience leading campaigns across the country on police accountability, racial profiling, and death penalty abolition, specifically in Maryland, I even noticed. So uh, wonderful. Thank you for joining us. And following up on that is Dr. Ned Omar-Goulet, the Canada Research Chair in Migration, Race, and Identity at the University of Toronto, where she's also an Associate Professor of Sociology. Neda, I've read your book. It's informed uh, works of my own, uh, works of colleagues, friends, uh, The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian Americans, and the Everyday Politics of Race. Uh, definitely looking at a lot of issues that second-generation Iranian Americans uh, have grappled with, uh, including myself. So um, yeah, I'm sure a lot of folks in our audience, if they are of second generation, uh, may have come across that. And uh, finally, and uh, last but not least, uh, Nayak's very own senior research fellow, Dr. Asad Rod, who authored the report that that is kind of inspiring today's discussion. Uh, Asad got her PhD from the University of California, Irvine in 2018, which is focused on modern Iran. She's got a book coming out called the state of resistance, politics, culture, and identity inside modern Iran. I'm sure you've seen her on Newsweek, uh, BBC World, BBC Persian, Al Jazeera, NPR, all over the place. Thank you all for joining us. So the questions are going to open up about an hour later uh, into uh, kind of a Q&A. So we'll get to that. But uh, first and foremost, I kind of do want to get started with uh, Asad. Uh, if you can just kind of summarize this fantastic, diligently researched report you put together 
uh, and kind of, I don't know, like a 60 second, 30 second summary for folks who you know haven't had a chance to read it. Uh, and then we can kind of move on from there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first, thank you for everybody who's joining us today for uh, what I hope is really the beginning of this conversation. Uh, we've spent so much time letting uh, U.S. politicians, media, um, specific groups sort of represent our entire community and the discussion about our community and how our, our rights are infringed upon in this country, um, as well as the, the sort of policies that inform how our families are impacted in Iran. And for me, the idea of this report was to bring together the stories that we're all very familiar with, right? Where we, everybody who's here right now has probably experienced some kind of popular culture moment where they thought, that's not a very good way to depict our community that doesn't represent me, that doesn't represent my family, or a politician who said something out of place, um, or policies that have impacted them personally. And the idea of the report was to bring those together to show that, and we'll discuss this obviously further, but how dehumanizing Iranians, how sort of just demonizing uh, the entire country of Iran, its people into a caricature of a villain in the United States has affected, of course, our own community, our loved ones in Iran, and, and U.S. policy, right? Policies that have actually undermined our own national interests, global security interests, and how in, in the world of foreign policy, we don't as much discuss the role of of prejudice or bias. And so that was ultimately the, the point of the report to, to have this important conversation. Wonderful, wonderful. And so with that, I kind of do want to go around uh, with our speakers and guests today to see, you know, in your particular opinion, what is the most damaging or one of the most damaging depictions of Iranians that you all remember from your particular vantage points throughout your particular lives? Gen you know, we're all of different generations and, and what have you here. So I did want to go around. Uh, who wants to start? Let's maybe start with uh, Dr. Niaz Kassavi, if you'd like to kind of talk about one particular depiction of our community that, that you recall. Um, yeah. I think I want to sidestep the obvious because I feel like we're going to talk about how we're demonized and portrayed as, you know, terrorists, backwards, uneducated, um, suppressed, oppressed, um, you know, all that stuff. And I think in my line of work, one of the more damaging um, sort of stereotypes is one that sometimes we put on ourselves, right? Um and that is when we see that something bad has happened to our community, a policy has been implemented that negatively impacts us, discriminates against us, or we fear that that's coming down the line. A lot of us and some folks who represent us um, out in the community kind of jump to the talking point of like, well, we are, basically it's the model minority myth, right? We are, the most educated of minorities. We don't commit crimes. We have a lot of wealth and finances as a community. And therefore the assumption is then you shouldn't do these things to us. But then the flip side of that is it's okay to do it to other communities that may not have as much education that may not, you know, and so I think that that is dangerous in our long-term fight for equality and justice and overcoming this uh, um, dehumanization um, and these stereotypes that we see all the time about ourselves in the media and through policies and by politicians. And I think that really does a lot of damage to our need to then work with communities and partner with communities that share the same experiences, probably 
often worse, sometimes, you know, longer than we have experienced these things. So to me, that's, I think one, it's a little bit of a different thing than, than we would jump to when, when we talk about stereotypes that, that we find damaging, but that's one that I've come across through my career that I wish we could do away with and, and work towards kind of not going there as an instinct. Definitely, definitely. Something that doesn't get played up as much, I think, that sort of model minority myth that circulates a lot and is used, like just like you said, to deflect many things and obviously creates issues in alliance building and so forth. Um, uh, so let's move on. Uh, doctor, uh, let's start with doctor. I'm, I'm the only person who's not a doctor here, so I, I'm going to say doctor and I'll pick somebody. Uh, Dr. Marboulet, if you'd like to kind of speak to uh, damaging depiction that that kind of you recall throughout your life or your work. Hi, Yara. Hi, everyone. Thanks again for having me and for hosting this discussion. Um, this is Khoda Muni, so please, you can call me Neda. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, um, similar to the really good point that Dr. Kasravi made, um, you know, I'm interested in the spectrum of like good and bad representation and how even something that seems like it could be a good representation can have really corrosive elements the way uh, Niaz John said. So in 2013, two academics, I'll shout out their names, uh, Sam Fayaz and Muzbe Shirazi, published an article in Iranian studies, and they were looking at the good-bad Iranian dichotomy in media coverage. Uh, they looked at articles published in Time Magazine and Newsweek between, I think, the years 1998 to 2009. So this was right before the Green Revolution. Um, and they described uh, that there's these, like two canonical figures that come up in U.S. media portrayals. Uh, one is the figure of the bad Iranian, and this is the mullah who's perceived as irrational, anti-modern, an enemy of the United States. And then in this corpus of news articles, there's this canonical figure of the good Iranian. And the authors of this uh, research say that this is, you know, youth in Iran who they quote-unquote describe as convivially partaking in the youthful cliches of American culture, namely sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And so this good Iranian in Iran is salvageable. This is someone who can be shaped and molded into a model Western political subject through their consumptive practices of like sex, drugs, rock and roll. Um, and then we see the effects of that in diaspora as well. There's research by this foundational Arab American studies scholar named Dr. Evelyn Al-Sultani, who works at USC in Los Angeles. And she's shown how the same good, bad Iranian dichotomy also extends to diasporic representations. So so the analogy here would be like in our pop culture universe in the U.S., the Shaws of Sunset, right? And how they perform consumption, mainly money, sex, mm -hmm. booze, whatever on television. And that that's, quote unquote, like the best that we have to offer in terms of representation. And that can itself have these corrosive effects, too. Totally, totally. And to speak to that element, yeah, definitely. Even even some of the work that I've done, people find themselves caught between these two. And you mentioned this in Limits of Whiteness, right? It's like, again, the sort of rich shahs of sunset type versus the terrorists. And it's like, right, the nuance, the reality is, is that the vast, 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 vast majority, almost everybody, doesn't really fall into uh, either category, certainly. Uh, and so moving on uh, to uh, John, if you want to kind of take over what's a depiction, a damaging one that you think exists uh, in, you know, within our community that, that has come across in your sort of life path. 
Yeah. Um, <clears throat> first of all, I just really want to uh, thank you all for having me as part of this conversation. I'm really honored to be part of this group, uh, people that I really like and respect and whose work is just so much more interesting and smarter than mine when it comes to these things. Um, you know, this is not my like natural um, area of, of research. So this is I'm looking forward to learning from all of you, actually. But um, yeah, I mean, so I guess as a historian, I was thinking that I was going to say I was going to talk about what I thought was sort of three um, eras, if you like, three sort of phases. Of course, I have to historicize this, but, you know, uh, of kind of Iranian stereotypes. Two of them have already been discussed, but I kind of do want to add a third one, which we sometimes forget when we go way back, which is the kind of Orientalist uh, depiction as well. Uh, in my mind, when I think of the way that Iranians have been represented in the American media, there is a historical trajectory that I think of as Haji Baba, uh, Visfahan, uh, and then the, the, the terrorist Mullah Islamic Republic kind of trope, and then the Shahs of Sunset, which you know I was also going to bring up, and I'm, I'm grateful to uh, Nether for bringing that up. Um, I think that the, these these kind of images and um, stereotypes have often coexisted at the same time, um, and I think there's a little bit of that. I think they, they often are kind of always there, all three of them in a different way. I think that first one is one we tend to forget about, and it's kind of you know, it seems less relevant, but is where we kind of started uh, for, the, for the vast majority of American history. Um, this idea of this kind of um, unctuous, slippery, unreliable, uh, can't quite pin it down, uh, carpet trader sort of, you know, I mean, the whole, all these stereotypes of, of the, the, these Haji Baba of Isfahan books that were very, very popular throughout most of American history until about the 1950s. I've met people, um, you know, Americans of a certain generation that remember this, these books, you know, that remember that movie. It was a hit movie in the 1950s. Uh, and the way that that uh, depicts Iranians is always kind of lying and cheating to one another and being a little bit slippery and, and devious and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but also exotic, weirdly, right? Not, it's, it's a weird, it's, it's tough to, you know, we talk about the kind of good and bad Stereotypes. I don't know where we put that one. And it's like it's good in some ways and also bad in others. It's a very sort of like uh, it's just this kind of alien oriental kind of um, idea, right? That's something that is alien and that is other, literally, uh, before we get anywhere else. And then, of course, that, you know, is replaced by the one that I think, you know, is pretty well known, right? The sort of, uh, you know, religious militant, fanatic, anti-American and whatever, terrorist, all that kind of stuff. Um, which almost makes you kind of nostalgic for that first one in a way, uh, right? It's like, I'm not sure, which, you know, I feel like I'd rather take that, um, you know, I'd rather take like the flying carpets and the genies, you know, over the like, you know, the mad mullahs kind of kind of stuff. But then, yeah, you get the Shahs of Sunset, which I think is a weird and I think really interesting attempt by a younger generation of Iranian Americans to reclaim a sense of who they are in a way that is positive, that but is a little bit needy. Uh, I think this is kind of what Neto was getting at, right? Is this kind of like wanting to prove yourself? Like, look, I'm just like you guys. Look, look at us. Like, we're, we're so much like you that we actually have taken what you've done and, and taken it to like an extreme degree now. So we're like, you know, drinking champagne and like partying in these limos and going to Vegas. And, you know, it's like, it's so over the top. Um, it, there's this, I think, a very neurotic almost desire to prove what you are not um, that I think comes with that. Um, so I have a lot of empathy for young Iranian Americans growing up in this atmosphere of like, where do you plug into all of this? Um, so I don't know. Those are just a couple of initial thoughts as a historian, I guess. 
Wonderful, wonderful. Definitely. I mean, as you were speaking about this, I was thinking about uh, it was either Wendy Sherman or I think even Hillary Clinton. They've both kind of had ish- things that come up uh, during the negotiations with Iran where it's like, oh, the Iranians can't be trusted or there's something devious about the Iranian DNA. I can't remember which of them said which, but that sort of sneaky, conniving sort of thing. That is true. That is that one also kind of you know lurks among the terrorists and the Shahs of Sunset. It is the sneaky, conniving you know, I, salesman. I don't know whatever like <laughs> just a quick thing you know i was just recently on a, on a call that was a few for a few hours with a sort of think tank pentagony kind of thing you know a few yeah. weeks ago uh, i don't want to mention any names but you know with some yeah. really really senior people who uh. you know write about iran and you know and policy on iran and whatever and one of them just kept talking about this like carpet trader bizarre trader kind of mentality i couldn't believe like we're still talking <laughs> like this you know these are people who shape policy in washington oh god um and you know it's like oh you know they're just such sophisticated negotiators and it's like uh, well in a way it's like thank you I guess. <laughs> but like right um, right i definitely see that wonderful and then let's kind of uh finish off this round with uh asa uh you know there's tons of you know incidents and and cases that you've documented meticulously in the report but maybe one that that really stands out to you well one thing is that the report is not even close to being exhaustive right only because uh, it's a 40 page report. So I didn't, I wanted people to read it. And so it's, it's a selection and that's kind of the the fascinating part is that there's so much of this. There's just so much that you have to be selective. And to your question about whether it was Wendy Sherman or Hillary Clinton, it was both. Uh, Hillary Clinton said that she doesn't trust the Iranians. And Wendy Sherman said that deception is in their DNA. So these are the highest officials in the United States basically saying that Iranian blood is is makes you deceptive. Um, and and they say it with no backlash, like right? no one says anything about it. To be able to say that about any other group in the United States would would likely consider some backlash. But when it comes to Iran and Iranians, it doesn't. So actually, in, in terms of stereotypes, everyone, I think, has spoken to it so well. One I will say is that and this might be I'll explain it, but there's almost a stereotype that we're not American. Mm. We're simply not American, right? We exist in a paradox where if we even try to to tread the the waters of discussing U.S. politics, um, U.S. policy, especially when it's about Iran, we're either stuck in being told we're not Iranian enough to discuss anything having to do with Iran that represents any particular group within the community, right? We're not, we're simply not Iranian because if we don't agree with a certain hawkish line, then we're not that. But then simultaneously not American enough to not be told to go back to Iran if we criticize US policy. So there's this odd paradox that we exist in where we have to toe the political line or our loyalties are questioned, which is odd because that part of the hyphen somehow always gets left out. It's like, we're yes, we're Iranian, we're of Iranian heritage, but we're Iranian American. We are also Americans. And that was the the thrust of this report was to say, look, we're just as American as everyone else. We have an equal right to to participate in this democracy. And that means being able to uh, voice dissent, voice criticisms. And we're not allowed to do that. Uh, So that's why this this space was, was so important to do is because that stereotype needs to go away. We are just as American as everyone else. And that doesn't denigrate our Iranian heritage or identity, right? It, it's not to say that we have to fit to the point that everybody was making about the sort of duality of, of good or bad. And that doesn't mean that you have to, you know, drink and party and go to Vegas and fit this other sort of assimilated American stereotype. All of those things defy uh, the, the meaning of being an American, which is to be free to be who you are. 
Wonderfully said, wonderfully said. And that actually segues perfectly. I kind of do want to talk about now uh, the impact of these sorts of depictions. We've gone really through, this is actually, it worked out quite beautifully. Everyone complimented everyone's answer. So what is the real world kind of impact of these depictions that we see from politicians we've spoken about, from media, Hollywood, uh, you know, the press and, you know, things that we see all over the place, uh, you know, any ordinary American growing up might see these depictions. What is the real world impact of, of that? And let's, let's start with Neda, if you'd kind of want to um, speak to, you know, obviously you've spoken to so many folks, uh, you know, in second generation Iranians and so forth, but yes, uh, what is that impact? Yeah. Um, to speak to second and third generation experiences of the real world impact this has on people's identity development or their formation of relationships with other people. Um, I think the overwhelming takeaway for me was that despite demonization or these externally imposed stigmas and barriers, youth express this like tremendous longing to connect to their Iranian heritage. Um, and they do so despite all of these different barriers, whether they're sort of social psychological or the lack of resources that exist in terms of um, self-education around right this complex history. And we have people on this panel who have done you know tremendous work to make um, these not just hidden histories, but really repressed histories come to light. Um, but nonetheless, it's like even when youth um, express this tremendous longing, let's say that they are able to um, travel to Iran somehow, or they are able to um, forge connections with other members of the diaspora community, they do still sometimes experience this um, degree of like rejection or disillusionment that comes from this attempt to try to bridge that longing. Um, they can have unsupportive or unsatisfying experiences in our diaspora community. And so I think what's fascinating for me um, in trying to sort of track developmentally what this looks like in the timeline of a young person growing up is that um, as youth are then stepping into young adulthood, you see evidence that this demonization of Iranians in the U.S. can kind of lead to a nascent political formation, a reactive identity for our community that's starting really to reject dominant labels and representations whether that's rejecting or questioning what the term Iranian-American itself has ever meant in earlier moments of history, or specifically around things like rejecting the categorization of Iranian and other MENA people as white in the United States. Um, these are, you know, in my literature and sociology, we would think of them as reactive kinds of political mobilizations or coalitions and identity formation. I think this can be exciting. It's potentially very powerful. Um, and as I describe in my book, this actually really challenges expectations people had for our community. The assumption was that by the third or the fourth generation, this would be a typical white ethnic story of assimilation. And we're finding whether it's a sort of chicken or the egg thing around foreign policy, you know, the sort of after effects of everything since, you know, the coup in 53 through the revolution and the explosion of cable news and, you know, those sorts of things. We have not followed that trajectory that people had assumed that we would. Fascinating point. Definitely. I mean, the, the post I'm being part of the sort of post 9-11 post, you know, war on terror, quote unquote, uh, generation, definitely a lot of differing thoughts and even an evolution of thoughts I've seen in, in kind of my cohorts uh, of, of this very issue you speak about. Right. It's it's just like and I think it's, it's such a fascinating thing to like map it to other communities like, like you know, people might have made comparisons to Italian Americans or 
or what have you, you know, given their entrance in the country and then how things have changed over the course of many, many decades. Um, John, I mean, I, I, on this front, real world impact of, you know, these sorts of characterizations, the Bazari carpet characterization, the, the sneaky DNA or all these things. Oh, what's your take? Uh, two things. Uh, as I was listening to you, I know, <sighs> One of the things, one of the examples that really sticks in my mind is something as simple as the 1953 coup. We forget this now. Um, in large measure, that coup took place, or the CIA support for that coup took place because American foreign policymakers under the Eisenhower administration fundamentally didn't accept that Iranians were ready for democracy. And that is a pretty, pretty fundamental part of that. I mean, people argue about was the coup, and I don't want to start talking about the coup, but like, was it about the Cold War or oil or this or that? You know, in large part, there was this feeling among, I mean, the, the, you know, the Truman administration felt that, you know, these are exactly the kinds of leaders you should be supporting. The Eisenhower administration, the Republicans felt, no, you know, you can't trust Iranians with democracy because the country will not be stable enough and the Russians will take advantage. Hmm. And it starts as early as that, right? I mean, there is that, you know, there, that kind of mentality affects American foreign policy from very, very early on, right? From the first major interactions between the two countries. Right. But the other example that I'm struck that I that I'm always reminded of, um, I don't know who who remembers watching the Oscars back in whatever year it was, twenty, I don't know, thirteen or thereabouts, when Argo won for Best Picture. I was very struck because Michelle Obama was invited on by Skype or something to open the envelope announcing who the winner of the Best Picture was. And I'm perfectly prepared to believe that no one knew who was going to win and whatever. Like, I'm not going to get all conspiratorial about it. You know, I mean, it was may have just been whatever. Because um, I think these envelopes are pretty, you know, tightly guarded. But I mean, the fact that no one had thought about how this would impact or be seen in Iran uh, if Argo did win, <laughs> as it did, that Michelle Obama is opening and going, you know, the winner for best picture goes to Argo. Um, you know, that is at best a certain kind of naivete. Um, at worst, I don't know what it is. Um, but, you know, I think these are the, there are many ways that these things get kind of interplayed with each other. And Argo was one of those films. I remember, you know, so many of my sort of progressive, enlightened, et cetera, friends at the time. Oh, it's such a great film. Have you seen Argo? You know, and you kind of, and I, you know, I, I don't want to, it's just kind of like the film depicts a very traumatic episode in American history, without a question, the, the hostage crisis. But it fundamentally depicts it from the perspective of white Americans rescuing other, or Canadians, whatever, rescuing other white North Americans from this angry, vicious mob of fanatical Iranians. And the simple analogy I would make to people was, what if someone made a, and of course this happened, it's factual, of course, sure. But what if someone made a film about like a bunch of white guys, like, you know, cops, like rescuing other white guys from like the Watts riots of 1968? you know, from an angry African-American mob, right. you know, you that would not register well with you as a progressive American. And yet there is this blind spot around films like Argo. Right. Um, and then when you compound that with Michelle Obama standing there and going, this is the best picture for the year, that is going to be received a certain way in Tehran. Um, and, you know, these, these things have an impact, a real world impact in American policy. I don't think that, you know, fundamentally alter a, uh, policy, but they're so deeply embedded but I think it's very hard to separate them sometimes. Definitely decades later, we're still getting the not without my daughter vibes. Definitely I mean, what you mentioned, right? The mobs, the Iranians, right? These these voiceless kind of angry people. Um, I know there's a line from not without my daughter, uh, which has a unfortunately a specific place in our community's history. What is it? How could you go back to that barbaric country? 
So something like that. And with that, I'll turn it over to uh, Asa. <laughs> uh, real world impact of, of these sorts of depictions from, from politicians and media. Uh, I mean, I, I want to hear from Niaz about the, especially the, the civil rights impact on Iranian Americans, but this this is a policy issue. It's a U.S. foreign policy issue. And I'll just say this. Um, the fact that the U.S. under now two administrations, Democrat and Republican, has been perfectly fine with keeping sanctions that they know are impeding the flow of humanitarian goods to Iran in the middle of a pandemic, in my opinion, and this is my opinion, is the result of a process of making people subhuman. Mm. Once, and this is a process, and that's the key, right? This isn't something that happened overnight. But of all these examples that are being pointed out, what John was just talking about, how how is it that you can get away with just saying basically anything about Iran and Iranians? And it's not even, like I said, it doesn't really make any kind of headlines. It doesn't make very much news. There's, there's no real backlash towards it um, because it is perfectly fine to say it because this state and its people have been villainized for such a long time, just decade after decade. We are bombarded with images, whether they're popular culture images, whether they're the news media, whether it's politicians themselves, um, taking a very sort of like nonchalant attitude towards things that are harming actual human beings, innocent human beings. So that fact to me, that impact cannot be overlooked as being linked to dehumanizing these people. Right. I mean, even the U.S. Congress, it seems one of the, the few issues that unanimously unites both parties, you know, when you look at the Senate voting, is really uh, sanctions on Iran. I think there's really one holdout. I mean, Assad, you can speak out, speak to this more than I can. Bernie Sanders, I assume, is I, who's that? Who's the one or two that, that usually don't vote for it? In any case, yes, that, I mean, to your point, yes, it's something that, that uh, across the board, this, this, this villainization, you can see it in, in their representation of lawmakers. Um, and I want to turn over to kind of the domestic space uh, again. Uh, Niaz can speak to kind of more of the social justice realm. Uh, these depictions, and we've had so many incidents come up in just the past few years. I mean, Bijan Reysa, I believe that's in Maryland, Shoyan Mazroi. Uh, what about from the domestic social justice realm? How can you speak to that in terms of the real world impact of these depictions we see every every day, every week? Um, I think what it has created um, through many avenues, right? But definitely this... Um, dehumanization of, of Iranians um, and othering of Iranians has a great deal to do with it, right? But it also has a lot to do with the fact that we're not counted properly um, in the census. Some members in our community don't know how to respond to those questions about ethnicity. It's really led to a lack of political power to demand justice and equality in the moments that injustice and inequality really devastate our communities as they have through the many kind of um, immigration policies that we've seen um, through the years and especially in recent history through these cases such as the Bijan Reysa and Shayan Mazroi case. Um, you know, we need that political power, that solid voice within our community that's recognized both um, by our community and outside to really stand up um, as kind of a united front when those things happen. And we're definitely in a lot better of a place now than we were when I first started doing this work. So, mm -hmm. you know, I know we're going to talk about some positive things. This has been for me 
although I'm, you know, I'm getting a little older, so I've been in the space for a while. It's really been great to see that, but I think it, um, we really need to work on pushing back on these stereotypes and creating our own narratives and our own stories and standing with other communities if we're to win the fight on the domestic front on civil rights issues. It also adds to building allyships. If you have to prove yourself first, right? Often um, this othering feeds into the kind of divide and conquer mentality. I remember when we first started at the NAACP, this was a while ago, um, we wanted to bridge the gap between other immigrant communities and the black community. And we really had to uh, do a lot of work to counter the narrative that these people are coming in illegally and taking our jobs and, you know, committing. So we had to like build those relationships. So it creates an extra step if we have to prove our humanity mm-hmm. and counter those demonized stereotypes of us. Um, and I think lastly, you know, I could go on, but um, I think it also creates a desire um, even subconsciously among some people in our community to perhaps let's join the non-demonized communities, right? Let's, no, we are white. We are, you know, (laughs) so, you know, it gets, it feeds into that whole uh, sometimes dilemma that our community has about our own perceived race versus like how others perceive us in this country. So um, it can be sort of an incentive to want to distance yourself from um, that stereotype and blend in. And, you know, as I was talking earlier, I I forget exactly. She was talking about how, how we are American and, and yes, we are Iranian Americans. Right. But I think to me, um, there's different ways you can perceive that, you know, I'm not the type of American who's like, I forget my culture. Let me blend in. Let me not speak up. Let me not criticize the government or people in power because that's unpatriotic. That's not the kind of American I am. Right. So the kind of American we should all strive to be is that, no, this is who we are. This is our culture. This is our heritage. And we are part of the fabric of the society and not shying away from that. And I think these stereotypes sometimes allow folks, a, you know, a way to, to, to kind of try to blend in and, and for lack of a better word, melt into this melting pot, which I, is a whole concept that I don't really particularly agree with. So I think that's also another impact that then has um, further impact on how we can fight to push back on civil rights issues when they come our way. Definitely. I actually wanted to ask a follow-up on that, but due to time, I'm going to try to move on to kind of the chicken or the egg question, uh, which is, and this is a question that, that I, you know, really does occupy, you know, my thoughts uh, quite a bit, which is, uh, there's a lot of talk, obviously, right? We have talk on both ends. You have 1979, you have a hostage crisis, which leads to the severing of ties between Iran and the United States. And then decades of sanctions, and you know now there's proxy wars and all these things that have, that have been going on. Um, and obviously, at the same time, we're seeing these depictions, these awful dehumanizing depictions of Iranians. You know, we can go to the, the 80s, the Beach Boys song, bomb, 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 Iran, signs, placards being holed up, deport all Iranians, even a rally being held by, I believe, a California lawmaker right after the hostage crisis that was filled with a lot of very kind of uh, raucous, uh, anti-Iranian, sometimes death threats, and so on and so forth, people being spat on. And then it kind of just escalates from there, film depictions, not without my daughter, Iran is a barbaric country, all these things. So those things are happening 
in tandem with policies being passed and and the United States uh, foreign policy kind of being very aggressive and hawkish and combating this this new foe, which was formerly a U.S. ally, right? So my question here is, as these two phenomena are basically taking place, which is the chicken, which is the egg? And and I, I can see how this can go both ways. What do you do? You, do does anyone here believe that these dehumanizing depictions originate from a political system, the government of this country in which we live, uh, basically adopting an antagonistic policy towards a new rival, and thus that antagonistic policy filtering down into Hollywood when they give interviews to the media. Oh, Iran, it's it's you know supporting terrorism in the region, and then someone in Hollywood's watching. Oh, who's going to play terrorists in my film? Oh, I just heard this on the news. Terrorist in the region, Iran. He's going to be an Iranian terrorist. He's got a big beard. And so, or or that's kind of one chain of logic. Is the opposite chain of logic that okay? So this thing happened. Americans, maybe folks in this country, got scared. They started to grassroots produce. This negative depiction, which then government folks would see and be like, "Oh, wow, people—it's very negative. Ne- Iran is polling very low. Let's not support that in the policies. Let's be aggressive on Iran. That's how we can win this election." So I'm kind of wondering. To me, I can see this go both ways, and I really am curious to hear uh, uh, which is the chicken, which is the egg. Is it the policy that funds the depictions, or that fuels the depictions, or is it the depictions from the grassroots that are in some way uh, uh, impacting the policy? You know, obviously, the nuanced answer could be both. But really, I want to hear which side do you all err on. And, and feel free, I'm not going to call on anyone. Whoever feels passionate enough to speak about this issue first, please uh, go go right ahead. I can oh. take it. Okay, can yeah, take yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I'll be the first one. Um, so I would go with policy. And the reason why I'm going to go with policy, and they do, they do interact. They certainly interact. So it's not like, you know, it's not like this... There is this policy, and that's the only reason these depictions exist. But the reason I say policy is because that policy actually goes a lot further back historically. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, the reason why, and and I think I'm, I'm going to use the phrase white supremacy, but and the importance of it is, is the reason why we exist in an entire global system where one group of people uh, wields power over most of the world uh, to take their resources, all of that is rooted back in colonialism and imperialism, which continues to this day, right? There's this idea that we live in a post-colonial world. We don't. We don't. Like, we can keep saying this, but as long as uh, resources are being concentrated in the hands of a few while, you know, the vast majority of the world suffers, this is a continuation of those policies. And so we are only one group that is affected by it. Uh, Iran historically was not a country that was formally colonized. That does not mean it was immune to colonialism. It was extremely impacted by it, which is why none of its resources were in the hands of the Iranian people. Why someone like Mossadegh gets taken out by the British and the US. All of these things tie back to the structures of power um, that exist domestically in the United States, which impacts all other communities as well. Um, And I will just say outright, obviously the black community in this country more than any other, from, from the inception of the country, from its very founding and beginnings. Um, and it, it trickles into world politics, right? So there is a very specific policy in place, and that policy is dominance. And there's a point at which we have to decide what direction do we want the sort of like world to go in? Um, and the reason why there's that impetus and responsibility on Americans specifically of any background is because we are the most powerful country in the world, and we will dictate what direction we go in. Will we deal with uh, global crises through nationalism, which is kind of what we've done with COVID, which is why it's been a disaster, or will we understand 
the, the premise of the things that we as a, as a global community understood in the wake of World War One and World War II, which is that there's a different way of approaching things. That will only work once we break down these sort of structures that place people, uh, that place especially anti-Blackness within those structures, but anti-Blackness, um, any disenfranchised group within a category where they can be exploited. Um, and we are just one of those groups. And I thought, God, Niaz made such an important point when she said, look, we can't just sit here and talk about ourselves. We are not unique, unfortunately, in the situation. And that includes domestically within the United States. And that includes when I talk about sanctioned communities. Yeah, we're about to starve millions of Afghans. So and not, not to mention so many other sanctioned countries. We cannot be a community that talks about human rights, that talks about notions of democracy without applying them to ourselves, without being allies for other communities. It is impossible to do so. So I think that it's policy, but it's not policy that was established only in 1979 or 1980 or, or 2018. Hmm. It is a policy that dates back a very long time and breaking that down might be challenging, but I think without having that conversation and including our own community within that conversation, it won't happen. Um, I'm going to add to that because I, I agree. I, I feel like if I had to choose 100%, I would choose policy, but I think that what feeds both of those things is white supremacy. Mm. And I think that is a factor not just for Iranians, but for other communities of color and immigrants who face these types of issues in this country. And I think that our community has to be comfortable talking about these issues. We have to be comfortable talking about systemic racism, talking about white supremacy. I mean, for heaven's sake, they're trying to ban. I mean, I think Virginia is probably the latest state that banned um, teaching critical race theory. They don't want to teach about racism. It's not comfortable, but I think for us to overcome this as a community, um, we have to talk about that particular thing. The fact that for the most part, even in our own community, even subconsciously, there are still feelings of the white race being superior, right? I often think about mm. sitting around the table um, in families that have mixed marriages. And I see the treatment of the white folks who married into the family versus the brown folks, right? Or in like board meetings where I notice, and I know there's actual strategies where people say, I have to have a white person on my board so that everybody would behave. Like we have to deal with these things because these things come back to haunt us, no matter how uncomfortable it is to talk about this with your family and your friends and your community. It's just going to serve to undermine our larger efforts for justice and equality for ourselves or um, other members of, of other communities um, if we don't address the elephant in the room. For sure. Uh, turn over to John, actually. I want to hear the, the foreign policy kind of angle on this uh, how does it? Yeah, I mean, because definitely the ties being broken, one government being invested in dehumanizing the other government, at least could definitely trickle out, I, I would assume. But I want to hear your take. Yeah, I very much come down on the side of uh, this begins with with policy. It begins not just with policy, but with um, the priority, the level of priority that the American foreign policy establishment places on a particular country as uh, an enemy. Look, Venezuela, um, you know, is not a country that has a very good relationship with the United States, but I don't think you see the same level of demonization of Venezuelans in the in American media. I mean, it's not as important. It's not a high level. It's not as much of a priority. Iran, 
and I think you could say Russia, for example, these days increasingly, is, you know, are, are countries where, you know, there is the, where the foreign policy establishment is in deeply invested in the idea of bringing everyone around a particular point of view. Uh, and to the extent to which media depictions can be helpful in that, um, people are happy to go along with it, even if it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit racist. But, you know, hey, you know what? It helps. It helps. Um uh, the cause. Look, I, I think this. It, I think to me, it's very clearly has to do with the relationship that the U.S. government has with that particular regime. I mean, anyone who remembers the way that Iran was de- depicted in American media in the 1970s, it's pretty obvious uh, how different things are now versus mm-hmm. then. I mean, Orson Welles narrated the documentary uh, on the 1971 Persepolis celebrations. It's called mm-hmm. Flame of Persia. I highly recommend you go and check it out if you haven't watched it. It's absolutely stirring, thrilling kind of. I mean, he has, he has that the kind of voice that no one else has, right? Uh, but it's you know, and it but it is so like the 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 you know it's the way that Iran Persia is, is depicted, uh, you know, uh, as this just this incredibly rich, beautiful, but exotic and inscrutable kind of oriental kingdom and so on. I mean, that's 1971. It's only ten, it's only eight years before the hostage crisis. Mm. Uh, you know, you've got Barbara Walters out there beaming, you know, uh, satellite, you know, reports from Iran and so on. The way that Iran is depicted before and after 1979 is so fundamentally different that, you know, I think you'd really be hard-pressed to say that this is somehow something that begins with a sort of grassroots media kind of landscape and then trickles upwards somehow to government because we know that um you know our government whether we whether we agree with their decisions or not it's much more sophisticated than that they're not going to be sort of um oh wow you know people don't like iranians maybe we yeah. should you know, stop being so right. nice to iran i mean right, I, right, know, right, right. I think it very much goes the other way into me no absolutely absolutely uh netta any thoughts on this um i know that we have to move on there's so much exciting yeah. stuff happening in the chat with the questions. The only thing I just want to add is that this is not my area of expertise, but I feel like we have plenty mm-hmm. of evidence, uh, whether it's with regard to our community or other communities, that um, this link between like sort of government statecraft and policy and then Hollywood depictions, um, they're not so much like here in these two different spheres. We have mm-hmm. plenty of evidence that they're like this. And mm-hmm. so I would just encourage us to bring our most critical lens that like sometimes the paranoia is justified around this because actually um, there's plenty of ways that that link has actually been established and substantiated, but not my area of expertise. Totally. I mean, just even, but even we can all speak to, I mean, definitely. I mean, I grew up, I think a lot of us did all the bond villains were always Russian. Um, Just think about villain, who voices villains in films, right? So Russians, anytime it really is a reflection in many cases of, what does your government think of that person's government, right? So if you're making cartoon with a villain, I mean, I think Jafar, interestingly, is, is, is a British voice in Aladdin, right? So evil, somehow evilness is associated with Britishness and Russianness, Iranianness. There's a couple tropes that seem to repeat themselves. A couple of things I've looked at in terms of media is also countries that are want that a director wants to depict as evil or awful or, you know, an antagonist. There's something called, I believe, uh, uh, I don't want to use, I can swear here, but I believe in, in the video editing world, they'll requ- refer to it as the shit filter. They'll put a slight yellow kind of jaundiced filter on top of any footage of the film from that place to make it seem uh, crusty and gross and and old and decrepit and, and not, and, and jaundice is just generally not a, a, a feeling that I think 
we would want to have uh, on our babies or on, of course, yes, uh, an entire people. So there's that sort of element. Uh, I think it always comes up again when folks are, I mean, I've heard so many stories from even friends who work in the entertainment world as well, still to this day, 2021, 2022, very, you know, well-traveled people who might identify as being progressive, whatever, they're writing these scripts for a lot of productions. And the thinking is almost just, is extremely, uh, what's the word I can use? I don't want to say just very awful in, in terms of how they cast villains. And they're thinking of, it's just so, and these are like, again, you would not expect, it could literally be your neighbor, right? Oh, smiling. Ah, oh, I love Hormisabzi. Oh, so nice to see you. But they're going and writing the script, which is just so fantastically misguided in terms of who they're casting as who and who the villain is and what their intentions are. So simple-minded, like the characters they draft. So it's something that very much, and then and the last thing I wanted to bring up, again, we see this collaboration, you know, for Netta's point, I mean, the CIA collaborates with Hollywood. The U.S. military collaborates with Hollywood and they gain special direct access to you know, U.S. government documents when they want to make a movie, say, like Zero Dark Thirty about the uh, the, the killing of Osama bin Laden or what, what, whatever have you. And so this is information that's like directly, directly taken from the U.S. government's like basically the film is reflecting that specific account. And so, yeah, all these things, I mean, the link is very clear to me. So I do want to end this and completely agree with everyone. What everyone's been saying is that, you know, policy. Um, I guess, I guess in the remaining eight minutes, I mean, there's a whole slew of other questions, but we're going to turn over uh, at five o'clock to the Q and A. Um, I guess let's, let's talk about a counterfactual maybe is, 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 do you think if the relationship changed, these depictions would perhaps also change or, you know, I'm thinking here again of, of another example of a, a man in Kansas who shot two, um, two men just in 2017 and when he was later interviewed, there were two Indian men. Uh, one of them passed away after the incident. And it was it was uncovered that this man, prior to shooting these two Indian men, this completely racist uh, killing, uh, he had told the bartender a little bit earlier that I am looking for Iranians. Like I need to I need to find Iranians. And so he thought these two individuals were Iranian. That's why he pulled the trigger. Um, in light of, you know, incidents like that, Cheyenne Masroy having Zoroastrian tattoo or something on his arm being identified by two white supremacists, you know, potentially, I assume, I don't know, at the bar and, and that happening, I guess if U.S. policy on Iran were to change, would we see a trickle down effect then of, of, I don't know, I'm just curious, I, I you know. Oh. I'm making someone else go first this time. John. <laughs> I could take a stab at this. I would say yes and no, because I think that some of it is rooted in policy and some of it is rooted in some of these racial issues that, that we've been touching on. I mean, there are examples of countries, you know, like Saudi Arabia is one that comes to mind, right? Uh, where we have a very positive relationship, one that I think is very transactional. And I think most people realize it's very transactional. So, mm. you know, do we see the same level of demonization of Saudis in the media? No, but not entirely absent either, because, you know, I think people have a lot of assumptions and stereotypes as well. I mean, you know, a lot of, uh, I mean, a lot of North African countries that we have wonderful relations with, uh, you know, but they're still Arabs and, you know, we still you know, represent Arabs really badly. Um, so I think it's, I guess, yes and no would be my quick rough and ready answer to that. Hmm. I mean, I sometimes personally always wonder if, you know, who does the buck stop with a Ken as someone myself who works in the media, 
can I try? I mean, I try to provide depictions and representations of all communities. I don't, I mean, I, I really overall, in the overall scheme of things, I rarely get to cover the Iranian community in my work, even though I have covered them. Uh, but it's, it's, or covered us, I guess I should say. But um, I guess it's kind of like the question that comes to, that comes to mind for me is like, who does the buck stop with? You know, what can, what can all of us do essentially? Maybe this is a great question to lead into the Q&A. What can we all do? to help change the state of affairs, not just for our community, but for other communities, whether they're adjacent to our community or farther away, right? Who may experience similar issues with regards to, you know, essentially uh, responding to white supremacy, which holds such a, such a firm sort of place in the society. What can we all do in, you know, in the media, in our jobs, in conversations by the water cooler, which seems to happen, you know, rarely now since we're all, you know, I mean, a lot of us work from home, uh, but uh, yeah. Um. It's okay if I start. Yeah, of course. Um, I think that kind of piggybacking off of the last question. I mean, I think the answer is is yes and no. I think we can't. Oh, look, we have a lot of great policies that are being implemented towards Iran. So the work is done, right? Mm -hmm. I think it it's become a bit more culturally embedded. And the concept of white supremacy is much older than <laughs> U.S.-Iran relations, right? So I think there's a lot of work. I think there's a lot of good people needed in kind of all sectors, right? Both the political realm, which I'm really excited to see a lot of young progressive Iranian voices um, being elected uh, through the years, much more so now than, you know, um, even a five, six, seven years ago. Uh, it requires people in the media and Hollywood industry, and we have access to all of that. So I think the answer to like, where does the buck, the buck stops with us, right? I can't control everything, but there are things that I can control that were, will contribute to the larger fight. And I think one of the things that um, in terms of what we can do, and I'll make it quick because I want to hear from other people, is that we just have to be engaged in fights that don't directly, logically impact Iran or Iranians. We're always present, really great around immigration stuff, policing stuff, eh, prison stuff, eh, death, but all of that stuff affects us. All of it. If you think I haven't seen Iranians in jail, on death penalty fights, being beat up by police, you know, it affects us. Cheyenne and Bijan could have been any one of us, any one of our brothers. So it's time for us and our organizations who represent us to show up around the table around those discussions that don't obviously target Iran, but for sure have an impact on our civil rights here. Um, and so I think it's something we can do individually, but I think we can ask also the organizations who represent us to show up to those circles and those fights. And so I'll stop there because I want to have time to hear from others. Um, in the remaining two minutes, I did want to turn it to Neda. What have you seen in terms of alliance building in the second and third generation uh, with Iranian Americans specifically? Has there been more outreach? Because I know I personally and anecdotally in my life have seen, you know, maybe the older generation, perhaps a little more, I don't know if we could say insular, maybe kind of more in touch with the Iranians. My generation, a lot more contact with, you know, South Asian and Iranian friendships, Arab and Iranian friendships. And then that even spreads out even further and ramifies even further, Black and Iranian friendships and so on and so forth. So what have you seen across those lines? And I'll kind of let this be our kind of clincher note uh, before we uh, move on. Sure. Um, thank you, Yara. So in the book, I really focus on young people and 
to a T. They were pretty much, you know, 1.5 generations. So they'd moved to the U.S. as young people, like in childhood, or they were second generation, so born in the United States to parents who had immigrated um, from Iran, or even third generation. Um, for sure, right, this kind of active coalition building and finding common ground with other racialized or marginalized communities was a very large thread um, that comes through, I think, in the stories I tell in the book. But for me, the most transformative takeaway I had once the book was out and I got to meet people in communities around the country who were reading it or discussing it was um, the extent to which this was actually even more intergenerational than I think mm. my book may mm. make it sound like. Whether it was the effects of Trump's election or the Muslim ban, the way that Neon's just pointed out, right, if it's an immigration issue, you might actually bet on our community being able to pull it together and actually come to the table to to fight for our rights. Um, no matter you know like what we can attribute it to, I think it was really um, fascinating for me to the extent to which um, I saw people, no matter which generation they were from, all the way to like that kind of first generation that I think sometimes really unfairly we've sort of painted as yeah. unable to have a progressive politics or unable to find common cause with other people wanting to pass as white or hide themselves, right? Um, yeah. I feel like I came away with tremendous anecdotal evidence when I was traveling with my book that there's a much more complicated story happening right now. And so... Um, some of the research that I'm doing currently is exactly like testing these kinds of generational hypotheses right now yeah. to try to have a more fine-grained understanding of Iranian-American racial and political identity right now. So maybe in Q&A, we can talk about that more. But that's kind of the silver lining to all this, is I'm thinking that some of the generational differences that we may have felt on an anecdotal level actually look a little bit differently right now uh. in 2022 than they've ever been before. Amazing. Okay, wonderful. That's a great segue, I think, to the Q&A. Thank you so much, Netta, and thank you all. Uh, so I do not know how to do this. So let's see, how do we, how are we going to, we're going to scroll up through this chat group and, and see and find questions. Is that, or have they been submitted? Oh, Q&A. Oh, here we go. They have been submitted. Okay. That's a lovely function they've developed for this app that we all use now uh, every day, seemingly. Okay. So, um, all right. I'm worried. Da, 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 da. Let me find a good one. So do give me a quick second here. Um, I think we did, uh, and I, I will make sure to read the whole one because some of them in, involve uh, uh, a little bit of a exposition before we get to the question. Uh, da, da, da. I'm trying to find one. And you there seems to be a little bit of virus Okay. Um, so maybe this this one can kind of hmm. maybe something. This one, I mean, it does speak to kind of the political kind of currents that are kind of filtering through our society and how things are are. There is a reactive element here, right? The travel ban, the war on terror. These things do trigger a different reaction from the community. Maybe set us on a different trajectory. Um, so this question is from Esmail Espandiori. Given the Black Lives Matter movement and U.S. public attention, you know, to issues of racism, oh, uh, white privilege, and so on and so forth, there seems to be a little bit of progress with regards to the treatment of our community in the U.S. compared to 30 or 40 years ago. Do you agree with this statement? 
If yes, do you see that progress as real lasting? Or is this newfound acceptance of minorities or perhaps great slightly differing acceptance of minorities is just a superficial nicety, and he describes it as tarof, that is going to fade away once the political climate flips? I'll quickly respond. Um, mm. I mean, I think generally um, movements and progress that impacts um, equality and the rights of Black people ultimately impacts and improves things for other people of color. Mm. Um, so historically, that's how it's always been. Um, I think that you know, hopefully it will last, but it's not going to last if we think that the battle is won, right? Because a lot of the progress that came out of the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, the work we did around um, policing and right-sizing their budgets, no one wants to use the word defund anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, but, you know, looking at what are police with guns actually responding to and figuring out, oh, well, they shouldn't be responding to someone having a marital dispute or a cat in the tree or whatever, right? And so, that's being rolled back because there's this fear mongering in the media about rising crime rates and whatnot. So these things, there's always a ebb and flow. And when progress is made, it's not a guarantee forever. So I think we need to continue pushing. And I think that the, the fact that we have made a little bit of progress and people did start talking about these things, that even the Iranian-American community got very engaged in those movements in a way that I haven't seen before, all progress, but I don't think we should close the book and, and say, okay, on to the next problem. Um, it's hopeful, but it's the beginning. Mm -hmm. I wanted to add to that because I think that that was an excellent point. Obviously. Yeah. This is just, this is just the beginning where, um, uh, the beginning of, of a new era, we should also say, right. Because we've had within the history of the United States, you know, you have the civil rights movement. That's something that was led by black Americans, but that other communities, um, not only did other communities ally, but other communities benefited from. Um, and so there's, you know, when we look at our own community, I remember, for instance, when Nayak was doing work uh, in summer of 2020 during the Black Lives, Black Lives Matter movement, um, we had a lot of support. But then also there were people who raised questions like, well, why are you doing this? What does this have to do with Nayak's work? What does this have to do? And so the response was simple. Number one, um, if we believe in the civil rights of Iranian Americans, we believe in the civil rights of every American. That includes Black Americans. Number two, there are Black Americans who are Iranians. They are part of our community. This isn't just a community that we're talking about. There are Black Iranians in Iran, right? So sometimes there's this misconception of, of what we're even talking about. What parts of our community are our community. When we talk about queer Iranian Americans, they are part of our community. So all of these, uh, you know, it's not just that the United States is a country that's diverse. Iran is a country that's diverse. The Iranian diaspora is diverse. And so we have to talk about these things with an understanding that, that we're not just, it's not just allyship, it is our community and it impacts our community. But, you know, when we talked about earlier, this idea of uh, obviously uh, many Iranians benefit from being sort of like white passing or white adjacent. And of course you have this idea within the community that we want to assimilate because you know, that's the dominant group. 
But I don't think that our objective should be to assimilate to a group to take advantage of a system of exploitation. I think our objective should be to dismantle the system of exploitation, which would benefit everyone, including ourselves. Definitely. Anyone else want to weigh in on this one before I move on to the next question? Basically, you know, if the political climate flips, are we going to stop? You know, if, if, you know, right, if let's say the Muslim ban had not happened. I mean, I, I think it's very interesting how that might have impacted things. I mean, as a counterfactual, these are very difficult things to discuss because there's no way to actually measure like what if, you know, what if Mossadegh had not been overthrown? Well, you know, <laughs> but um, OK, I'm getting the vibe that we should move on. So I'm going to move on to a question that is a very. Uh, I don't know. It's it's definitely always a great one to discuss within the community. <laughs> How united? And this is from Ali Salehpour. I'm going to answer live. Okay, you would like to answer this question live. How united is the Iranian community? How much does a divide within the community undermine any progress? And if there is indeed a divide within the community, how can it be addressed and remedied? We all know about the divides that exist within our community across various lines that have come up today during our discussion. But who wants to kind of take the stage for for this one? I mean, I think Neda, if you want, this is something that, I mean, we, we were just speaking about this right as we led into the Q&A. Um, yeah, I mean, how divided are we? And if there is a divide, how can it be addressed? Yeah, I mean, off the top of my head, these are not going to blow anyone's minds. They're things we're thinking about all the time, right? Like three major fissures could be politics, class, and generation, right? Mm. Just off the, off the dome, <laughs> those are three major um, sort of like, lines where um, there is not just like feelings of um, distrust, but there's actually been tremendous harm, betrayal, and real wrongs that people have experienced, mm. right, from one another, this sort of intra-community, um, not just hostility, but in many ways, blocking, violence, you know, you name it. And so, um I don't have a band-aid solution for this, but I think the important thing is um, to obviously really, really amplify um, the work that we're seeing that we think is really good, that is challenging some of these long-standing fissures within the community. But also, I think like we're mature enough now, perhaps, you know, sort of solidly in the United States for 40 years, but obviously, as John's book points out, with a much longer legacy in this country. Suffice to say, I think we've been here long enough that we can start to have more frank discussions about some of these, like, dirty things that are happening behind the scenes, right, um, where people are actively undermining one another. Um, and I think the more that we can actually kind of expose these sorts of tremendous issues, then we can also um, start to address them head on, you know, and it's almost like um, what we saw in the chat earlier today, that there was um, someone in there that was trolling. And one tactic would just be to, like, be quiet, don't call out that it's happening, hope but that someone from NIAC is able to, like, remove that person from the group. But I loved that, like, more than one person, multiple people in the chat were like, hey, guys, there's a problem in this space. This person is violating our community, you know, boundaries. And even though NIAC was already on it and they were going to remove that person, what a good feeling that was for mm. me as a panelist that someone in that chat was out there looking out for us and actually spoke mm. up and said something, right? That was actually amazing. And so mm. this is just like a tiny 
futile example, but imagine what that could look like if we could speak out more when there's trolling, if we could speak out more when there's actually harm and violence happening to other members of our community. That could actually be really tremendous for this question that, that this person has posed. Wonderfully said, wonderfully said. I mean, the divides are, are very, very strong. John, I know you see them, of course, with regards to foreign policy. It almost seems to me that uh, what should be done with Iran, the country you know, from which we derive our heritage or perhaps our birthplace, uh, seems to be a, one of the biggest, the biggest uh, sort of splinter, you know, that issue. Perhaps there's more uh, disagreement over that than there may be sometimes disagreement over here, but maybe that also could also not be true. I do want to turn it over to you get that foreign policy angle, though. Yeah, no, I'm actually glad that, that uh, someone raised this exact question because this was kind of on my mind as well. Um, we are such a divided community uh, politically. Um, I, th I think Ned is right about some of the other fault lines as well, of course, but I do think politically is where it's most vicious, probably, um, and most dispiriting. Mm. Because, I, I mean, I think we're not going to be able to make any kind of progress uh, towards dismantling some of the kind of concerns that are being raised today, the othering of Iranian-Americans, etc., um, when we have fundamentally different ideas about how we would even go about that um, and how we would even go about, I mean, depending on what your politics are as an Iranian-American, as an Iranian in the diaspora, you are going to, this whole question is going to look very different to you, right? Um, uh, you know, what, what does it actually mean to have a more positive representation of Iran? You know, you're going to have a certain number of people who are going to say, well, you know, who are very fixated on the idea that the positive, the way to, to, to make it more positive is to say, you know, we're not like the Islamic Republic. We're not like those barbarian terrorists over there. We look at us and how kind of cultivated and sophisticated we are and how we drink alcohol and, and gamble and go to Vegas and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and then you're going to have a different set of people who are going to say, uh, you know, um, we need to stop demonizing Iran generally uh, mm. and our policy needs to be more humane and more diplomatic and more, you know, uh, building bridges to the Islamic Republic, however challenging that might be, you know, whatever, whatever. And I think we need to be able to talk to one another. And this is the problem. We don't. We just we actually tear each other apart when it comes to these kinds of questions. So how the hell do we expect anyone else to actually, uh, you know, treat us with uh, any kind of respect or dignity? And I think that's where a lot of these I'm not trying to blame the community itself. Yeah. But I think some of these things have to we got to look inward and we got to be a little nicer to one another and a little more civil to one another when we don't agree. I feel very strongly about this. You know, I think the example that hit me, if I, and this relates to your original question. So when Asal first sent me the report, the draft of the report, I sent her, I was reminded of a Saturday Night Live skit that I had watched as a teenager growing up as a recent immigrant from the UK, but whatever, as a recent immigrant to uh, the United States, you know, in my late teens, it was called Iranian People's Court. Uh, where Dana Carvey or whatever is out there. Like, you know, this is like the spoof on the people's court and everyone's going, la, 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 you know, and they're cutting off each other's hands, you know, all this kind of stuff. And that's it. That's the joke. That's the joke, right? Um, there isn't much more to it than that. And I, I that was a, a skit that had very, that had really impacted me at a very impressionable time in my life. I'll be totally honest. I remember watching that live on, you know, late night television and just being, I just so, I kind of hurt and, 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 demoralized by that, that this is just the joke, right? That there isn't anything else to it. But what was really interesting to me is that Asal then shared that on Twitter. Um, and the responses to that were very interesting and in, in informative and instructive to me. Because you had a whole bunch of people that were saying, this is so offensive, I can't believe this, they would never make this about any other 
community, whatever, which had been my original, the way I remembered it, the offense. And then you had a whole other bunch of Iranians and Iranian-Americans saying, this is totally fair. Like, this is, this, right. is what the Islam, this is what the Islamic Republic represents. They, you know, this is right. Sharia law. You know, they are fanatic. The joke is on the Islamic Republic. They're not making fun of us. Right. And without, you know, without casting judgment one way or the other, right. you know, I mean, it would be very easy for me to go, to get angry and say, oh, no, that's not right. No, this is actually racist against Iranians. And, you know, but it kind of, I found myself reflecting and going, well, you know, that's how I had felt it originally. But I guess I could sort of see where you're coming from, too. You know, maybe that is the joke. I mean, I don't know. And, you know, rather than, you know, go at each other's throats and say, no, it's this or it's that, mm. you know, maybe we need to listen a little bit and recognize that the offense or the sense of uh, otherization or being less than or humiliation that a lot of Iranians might feel is experienced differently by people, depending on their politics and depending on where they're coming from and depending on their backgrounds. And we've got to start by respecting that among one another and, you know, uh, the the real rhetorical and emotional kinds of attacks that are made uh, on people who disagree with you, it's mm-hmm. not helping anything. So. Right. These divisions. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just so much. There's so much to talk about. I mean, uh, Asad Niaz, uh, what do you know, what do you guys think? What's the way to address it first off? And, and has it gotten worse? Is it getting better? So there's a, a f- so much to say about this because this is sort of essential to the question within the report, right? Um, I want to point out a few different things. One is a sort of um, irony of dealing with a situation where you have groups of people who espouse democratic ideals, but then personally attack you if you don't agree with them, if you don't agree with their politics, hmm. uh, which sort of defies the entire point of a, of a democratic concept. And so this idea that there's divides in, in the you know, Iranian community and the Iranian American community and the Iranian diaspora. Of course, there is. We're talking about millions upon millions of people. When have that many people ever agreed on anything? There are significant divides within the United States, right? And and the Iranian American community, as part of the United States, falls along the similar lines of those divides. So it's not counterintuitive that we would have divisions within the community. It falls within the very sort of natural way that that people formulate different views of things. But what I would say is that I do find problematic, and I will pass a little judgment on this, I do find problematic when a group of people, whatever people that is, is dehumanized and people defend it. Um, There is no defense for a racist depiction of any group. There's no defense for it. Um, It's not not our point of view or their point of view. There are real-life impacts to that kind of dehumanization. And we can agree on not liking the Islamic Republic, but it's not the Islamic Republic that is starving under sanctions. It's Iranian people. It's not the Islamic Republic that is um, suffering under dehumanization in the same way. And it's not, they're not the ones in this community who are suffering under it. They are not the Iranian Americans who are being targeted because they're akin to terrorists. Um, all of those things, those real life impacts, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about states, but yes, we have the right to uh not only do we have the right to criticize our government in our state, and, and for any clarification, I am talking about the United States. It's odd that I have to clarify that point, but it seems that's part of the problem in this conversation. But in a democratic society, you're responsible to do so. It is the responsibility of the people to hold their government that is of and for and by them to account, or what is the point of having a democracy? So my I will take issue with the idea of, of anyone within this country, um, of any background, 
who, and, and there are plenty, by the way, of other diaspora groups in the U.S. beyond the Iranian diaspora that take issue with their home country's governments and not necessarily with the U.S. government. I take issue with that because this is our government. You would never, ever, ever hear someone question if an Iranian in Iran criticized the Islamic Republic every day, 24 hours a day, no one would ask, why aren't you criticizing the U.S.? It's a nonsensical statement. They're doing so. They're criticizing their own government. They're standing up for their own rights. We are doing the same. We are engaged in the same process, and yet we are held to a different standard. And that is the exact point, because we are not seen as Americans. That's the problem. But we are. And, and going back to a previous question in terms of divisions of, of the community, and Netta and Niels have spoken to this, and we've said it, we cannot say it enough. We can expect people to show up for our community when we show up for theirs. And so this is not just an issue of our community. This is an issue within the country itself. And we have to be able to address the larger issues that we are a part of, not the exception to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Divisions, Niaz. Um, I think that's right. I think what Asas, there, I've talked to my friends from other diaspora communities and they talk about different types of divisions along similar lines in their community. So I think often we, it's good to be critical of ourselves constructive, uh, constructively, um, but I think, you know, it's not unique to have these divisions, right? But I think often, I've noticed throughout my career, particularly with older generations, it was much more difficult to get through and um, knock those walls down and actually have a conversation. But I find that with the younger generation of Iranians, it's much easier to have these types of conversations, even when there's disagreement. And it gave me a little bit of hope, to be honest with you. Um, and so, you know, yes, I feel like there's divisions with our, within our community that are very detrimental to what we want to do for ourselves, for our fellow Americans, our fellow Iranian Americans, um, our fellow Iranians in Iran, these divisions, of course, um, can be detrimental to those efforts, but it's not unique. And I think we need level-headed leaders that don't, whether it's elected officials or community leaders or scholars, that don't steer the community down that path of grasping onto the emotion versus the fact, yeah. right? So the emotion of not agreeing with the regime in Iran can take over the facts of like, well, what you're doing about it is harming cancer patients. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we need communicators and experts who have level heads who are not going to buy into this fear mongering. It's really hard to come by, especially for elected officials. But I think I think it's possible. We've seen it done. Um, yeah. So I think um, those were the things. I think it's not unique to us. I think we need level headed leadership. And I have a lot of hope in the younger Iranian American generation to do better um, along those lines. Wonderful, wonderful. And I'm going to move on now to a, a question by James Caroni, the answer live. So a little bit of a personal anecdote uh, prefaces this question. Uh, a little personal anecdote first, before I sought out the Iranian American community, I don't remember any representation that existed in American media other than the two stereotypes you mentioned. I believe this is talking about the sort of duality between the terrorism and terrorist and the Shahs of Sunset Rich 
alcohol, money kind of sort of depiction. Uh, now, after looking for more nuanced representation, I have found more and more of us out there, which is nice, but I sought it out because I'm Iranian American. With that said, how do we create the nuanced representation that we desire or enough of it so that it's not so invisible to people outside of our community? I think we need to create a fund to support stories, storytellers and artists in our community. Uh, it would ideally be a diverse collection of filmmakers, writers, comedians, journalists, etc. Not only academics, but voices of all economic uh, statuses. If we aren't telling our stories in a way that is nuanced and commercially digestible for people outside of our community, how will we overcome the public's negative stereotypes or perception of us? So, right, how do we create that create that nuanced representation that that we desire? Uh, and yeah, can I take the first stab at this question? Of course, um, yeah. Hi, James. Uh, it's such a great question, and I have to say, like. There are so many creators and artists in this Zoom that it's actually blowing my mind. Like when we're talking about the kinds of representation that we want to see, the kind of um, people whose work needs to be amplified and supported, you are exactly the kinds of people we're talking about. Um, mm -hmm. Michelle, Adib, everybody that's right now saying hello in the chat. Like there are just so many um, people really walking the walk. Um, and so, you know, this is not my space. Like I'm an academic, but I want to boost everybody in this chat who is an artist and a creator um literally i suggest we all panelists and audience members use the chat as a kind of phone book for people who are doing really cool stuff that we might not know about um i want to say in policy circles uh, work by the Rethinking Iran project at mm -hmm. Johns Hopkins, um, led by Vali Nasser, Nagas Bajopoli, and the other colleagues there. They're making tremendous strides in terms of bringing fresh perspectives and new representations to DC and the policy space. Um, speaking myself from the academic side, there's still so much room for high quality academic work. On Iranian Americans because the number of unresolved research questions involving our community is tremendous. Every single one of the questions posed in the Q&A was in of itself a dissertation that could have been studied and written. Mm -hmm. and so my advice to anyone who, who may want to pursue this in a sort of research or academic setting is to tap into what people have already done. Stay strong because even though people might try to tell you that your work is niche or marginal or somehow not relevant to broader publics or broader scholarship. Because you've chosen to focus on Iranian people, don't listen to them. And that research or art, whatever your passion is, it takes a really long time to do and to get it right. But it's so, so important to do it anyway. Um, other people have a lot to, <laughs> to say too, but I wanted to make sure that those points got across. I actually want to invite Yara to answer that because oh, you okay. are yes. the, the media person. Um, hmm. So hmm, let me think in terms of, yeah, I mean, of course, artists, I, I think I do want to also piggyback off of uh, what Netta was saying. And I, I have, I have a lot of, you know, again, personal anecdotes and things I'm saying. One thing that really inspires me, obviously all the folks that are in this chat group wonderfully said Netta. I mean, it's, it's really, we're seeing the proof in the pudding, the change and the generational kind of so on and so forth. But, but uh, just recently, uh, for example, a member of our community, Ariane Moyet, who is, plays Stewie in succession, uh, various other roles he's kind of recently assumed in some productions, 
the roles and and I've spoken with him before and 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 I'm I'm quite taken by his moral character in terms of the roles that he takes. And if, and if recently you guys have been paying attention to some of the the pieces he's been cast in whether it's uh, Spider-Man or Love Life on HBO where he just plays a random Iranian friend or or Stewie in Succession his full name is Stewie Hosseini for example, but the Iranianness is not necessarily mentioned. I mean I don't know. I have to maybe you really pour over the script and see, but it's this notion of like, we, I mean, kind of to Asal's point, we are Americans. We are living in this country. This is our country. Many of us were born here. Some of us moved here, whatever. This is the place that we call home. And the Iranianness is very much ancillary almost. It's like, this is a part of me, but I'm not going to be coming into the scene, eating and wearing like a little, a little flag on my chest and like a Zoroastrian necklace and maybe whatever the typical, you know, uh, depictions are. I am Iranian, but in this particular scene, I am a douchebag financial investor. In this scene, I am, or in this film, I am a friend, a loyal friend to, you know, uh, this this man in love life that is a black man in the second season. They kind of follow him throughout the entire season. In Spider-Man, it's, you know, so I don't know, I don't think he's been, he's specifically cast in, in the new Spider-Man film as an Iranian character, but I have to see. But I, I found that to be very uh, inspiring. And we're seeing all these sorts of representations now uh, that we perhaps didn't see a decade or two before. The sort of nuance that we want uh, slowly popping up more and more and more. And that kind of is a very heartening uh, effect. And I, I only see it happening more often uh, with each passing year as our community kind of enters into the second, third, fourth generation and so forth. It, it, it really is in many ways, it's it's an evolution of, of even the comedians, you know, right? You, you go back 20, 30 years ago, the kinds of Iranian American comedians we had and the kinds of issues they were discussing. And now you fast forward to today and you look at the sort of comedian the sort of spectrum we're starting to change in, in, in many ways and talk about issues that even build alliances with other communities. So I do, I am very heartened by the developments uh, we've seen. I'm, I'm happy to have played a small, tiny rice kernel of a part uh, in that. But uh, but yeah, in terms of supporting artists and storytellers, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that is kind of beyond me. I'm not in touch with any of, of the, the wealthy funders and and folks that do have access to funding these sorts of things, but of course would love to learn about them as a content creator myself. Um, I don't know. I, I can't speak to the to the folks supporting. I don't know if any of the folks on this panel have have any insight into that. Please uh, message me later. <laughs> message all of us. Um, <laughs> can I? I don't know if I can. I'll think about it. If I know anyone, of course, I would connect you. But I think what you said is really important is that sometimes we jump to the conclusion that because they're dehumanizing us, we have to be like, oh, look at me. I'm like superwoman, superman, superhero, you know. Yeah, yeah. But what it takes is normalization. I, you know, I'm, I have, I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. I have a dog. Like, you know what I mean? This is my life. And so I think that's a much more powerful counter narrative mm. than like, look at me, you know, superhero Iranian type of a totally. thing, which is not, you know, has its place, but, but I think the normalization is, is really the key. Definitely. Yeah. I don't know. I, this is, this is a topic that I could, I could wax on, but I'm, I'm the moderator. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take a step back. <laughs> Uh, okay, let's, uh, if anyone else has anything else to say, otherwise we're going to move on to the next question. Uh, and yes, uh, we, hold on, how do I mark this as, as completed here? I think we have enough time. Oh, it looks like we're just about at time. We, I don't know, Asad, what do you think? Should we, 
do this last one or how, how, how are things? Uh, you know, since, since we already did a very long sort of yeah. session, I don't want to keep everyone yeah. longer, especially yeah. with respect to the time of our panelists. Yeah. But if we want to have everyone just have sort of like a closing thought and I can yeah. start off on a closing. Yeah, thought. let's do that. Yeah. Let's have a closing um, thought. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, this project for me, and, and I'm sure everybody who's here right now can relate, was obviously deeply personal as well, right? It's not, I'm not writing about an abstract academic concept. I'm writing about, you know, when John talked about the, the SNL skit that he remembered, um, a lot of the sources I pulled were from memory. I was just like, oh yeah, I remember that. That was really bad. And then I would Google them and search them and find them. So I just want to say, I want to again, thank everybody who came, thank everybody, uh, our panelists, Yara for moderating. This sort of encourages me when there are times where it's very easy to be discouraged about the state of things, whether it's our community, whether it's the larger community, our country currently, but feeling like you are part of a community is so rewarding and so helpful in, in continuing this work. So I just want to thank everyone um, for the work that you've done, the work that you'll continue to do. And I hope that we can continue to have this conversation. So Nias. Um, yeah, um, thank you again for this wonderful conversation. It's really been an honor to be um, speaking with the panelists and I feel like I missed a whole bunch of conversations in the chat. Um, <laughs> I wasn't able to multitask, but, but you know, I think that um, sometimes we look at these large problems and it seems insurmountable and we kind of give away our own power to play a role in a solution. But I think it's absolutely up to us to be a part of the solution here, whether it's individually in our lives and our representation of our version of being Iranian American in the workplace with your friends who are not Iranian, you know, we are the answer to that narrative change, mm -hmm. right? So we often feel like, oh, I can't do anything about it. Let me just focus on, you know, planning my party or whatever. I, I feel like we we um, disempower ourselves. So I, I would encourage everybody to kind of change their mindset about that. And often we um, think about, well, our organizations should be doing this. NIAC should be doing this. So-and-so should be, well, you know, they represent us. So I feel like if there are things we want to do at the community level, at the advocacy level, we want organizations to take part in, I mean, own that, own that power and, and that voice as well. So I would encourage us to all get engaged with communities and organiza organizations that represent our community and let them know what you think about the multitude of policy issues and narrative and, you know, base building issues that we've been talking about. So I would just encourage folks to, to not disempower themselves without having actually tried to put themselves out there as part of the solution. John, uh, if you want to, you know, last words. Um, Hossein Allah, who was the prime minister of Iran uh, at one point in the 1950s, and I think once again, uh, who was started out his career in the early 1920s as uh, a very influential Iranian ambassador to the United States, went on the speaking tour all around the Midwest and all around uh, the U.S. Uh, to try to improve the image of Iranian Iran and Iranian Americans uh, in the US. And one of his favorite lines, this is in 1922, was that it was time to move beyond cats and carpets. Uh, and I think he couldn't have had any idea what was to come. Wow. <laughs> be careful of what to wish for. Uh, but, I, you know, um, <laughs> I think it's time for all of us. I, you know, we want to, I think we need to move beyond cats and carpets, move beyond terrorists and uh, religious fanatics and move beyond shards of sunset. 
that would be my only hope is that we move beyond all of these uh, various generations of stereotypes that have accrued up on top of one another, um, you know, in a way that uh, has not been particularly positive for a community and to be able to simply celebrate our humanity. So I, I want to say that I really think this is a great conversation to start moving us in that direction. And I'm just so grateful to have had the opportunity to learn from all of you because this has been educational for me listening to the other speakers and panelists as well as all of our um, audience members so thank you for organizing this Netta. um yeah i want to thank the panelists and nyack um i think that again the q a i sort of framed it as like every single one of those questions could have been a dissertation but mm -hmm. maybe a dissertation makes that sound very abstract or kind of overly like part of the ivory tower and somehow inaccessible um i think these are actually like everyday questions that all of us can provide some solutions or answers to it doesn't have to come necessarily from a person that has a doctorate, you know, or any of the sorts of like things that people maybe that were featured on this panel, um, the way that we move through the world and the way that we're sort of doing that work that like every kind of contribution that people are making, whether it's community organizing, uh, activism, art, um, you know, work in, in the business uh, field, all of that, um, I think can help address some of these like fundamental questions that people are raising. Um, for me, though, ultimately, I think our community needs like a rigorous, data-driven, empirical answer to this fundamental question that still haunts me. It shapes like every research project I do, which is how should we be counted as a group in U.S. society? And that so many people in the Q&A were still posing that question to me just provides so much fuel and fire um, to try to empower people with more data. And so this is just a thing that I'm going to plug, which is I have a really big research paper that's under embargo right now, but it's coming out next month. And so if you'd like to tap into exactly this question of how we should be counted as a community, what we might be looking towards for census 2030, um, follow me on Twitter. And as soon as that research report is released next month, um, I'll be able to have more of a conversation about that. And I really look forward to connecting with people who are passionate about that issue too. Wonderful. And Asa. Oh, did we go? Did we just go around? And am I starting yeah, around I, again? I started it. So oh, I started right. all the thank yeah. you. So you went the first one. Okay. Um, well, yeah, I mean, uh, if anything, I, I can't really think of what I can add beyond uh, what's already been said, but I'm just very heartened by what we're seeing. Again, uh, artists, people, you know, even, even we don't even have to maybe, I would even go beyond uh, maybe profession, just neighbors, friends, someone making tachin for somebody, somebody not even, you know what, somebody making wonderful uh, Mongolian beef, an Iranian American making Mongolian beef for their, uh, let's let's int introduce a third one. You know, it, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to make tachin, you don't have to make kebab, you can, you can make something that's completely non-Iranian and just be a human being and speak to your neighbor, knock on the door, bring them cupcakes. They don't have to be Yazdi cupcakes, they can be strawberry cupcakes. And, and that's what I think is amazing. It's just that human element, which again, speaks to kind of what I love about the, the roles that Arya Muayyad and other Iranian Americans have been recently cast in more and more is just, we are, human beings, ordinary folks, just like everyone else, uh, you know, slotting ourselves within the tapestry, the diverse tapestry of American society. So um, that's kind of, that's kind of the vibe, and, you know, and obviously building alliances and standing up for those uh, who unfortunately have not had it uh, very good in this society. But yes, thank you all for participating. This is a wonderful, wonderful panel. 
Uh, I will plug one last thing. I might, yes, and I, go ahead. I was yes, just yes. about saying this earlier. Read the report. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who have joined? Um, this is a conversation, you know, stemming from that. This conversation is brilliant, of course, but read the report too because it's full of a bunch of the information that we were discussing. 